Ephesians 6 says, The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In Hebrews 4, the Bible says, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Are your sword edges sharp? Is your Bible study life sharp? Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study, lets you sharpen the edges of your sword, the Bible. So get out your Bible and join the students at Life, the Lay Institute for Evangelism, for Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study. You and your Bible will never be the same. Hello, radio friend, and welcome to Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study. This radio show is something just a little bit different because you'll be able to study your Bible with the classroom students at Life, the Lay Institute for Evangelism. My name is Jeff Borger. I run Christian radio station WRGE in Ocala, Florida, and we've edited this series with you in mind. We're covering all kinds of interesting Bible topics, and today we'll be concluding our study on the judgment. A lot of people have different opinions on what the judgment actually is, but what does the Bible actually say about it? That's what really matters. Now, you can simply just listen to the study on the radio today, but if you'd like, you can also download the study guide to this episode and refer to it during the broadcast. Our website is just as unique as our radio show. It's radiobiblestudy.life. That's radiobiblestudy.life. And as I mentioned, we'll be listening to the Judgment Study Part 2 today. So when you go to radiobiblestudy.life, download study guide number 15 on the Judgment Part 2. And we'll be using the second half of that study guide today. You can also listen to the other shows there and download the study guides for those as well at radiobiblestudy.life. Right now, though, let's join Pastor Philip Sizemore in the classroom with the students at the Lay Institute for Evangelism. Welcome back to Pine Lake Retreat here in sunny Groveland, Florida. And I want to welcome you at home for being here with us, that you're here with us today. We're glad that you was able to, to make it. Um, today we're going to be going over the second part of the judgment, judgment two, actually the judgment two, part two. Yesterday we went over the judgment two, part one. And so what we're going to be doing right now is going into the, the second half of that study. Yesterday we, we covered um, all, all the details about how we get up to the point of, a, of an investigative judgment that's going to begin sometime after what year, according to what we just... If, if we, let's just stop. Let's do it this way. Let's just stop at Daniel chapter 7. We went to Daniel chapter 7. You remember that? And we actually set a date that the judgment has to be, begin sometime after what year? Does anybody remember? 1798, yes, when it, when it receives the deadly wound there. The Antichrist receives the deadly wound. After that, according to Daniel 7, the judgment would begin. We went through uh, three times in Daniel 7. It shows three times in there the order of events. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome is divided. Then the little horn power rises. And then the little horn makes war with the saints and wars against the saints. And then after he wars with the saints, uh, the Bible says that that will go for a certain time. And then the judgment begins. And then what happens after the judgment? The, the coming of Christ, right? We get to go back. We get to go to heaven. It's all over with. This world just ends, right? And so uh, we, he laid that out three times in a row in Daniel 7. And then we went to Daniel chapter 8. And we showed that, that Daniel chapter 8 started instead of with Babylon like, like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 did. Where, where did Daniel chapter 8 start with? What kingdom? Medo-Persia. And, and then I, I made the statement there yesterday. And this is where we're going to get to the proving point of this today. But the Medo-Persian Empire... Whenever uh, the reason the Bible starts right there is because it was during their reign, the Medo-Persian was reigning, whenever the timeline part of the prophecy of Daniel 8, whenever that timeline prophecy starts, the Medo-Persians would be ruling. So the reason it didn't start with Babylon, even though Babylon was still ruling while Daniel was having this vision, it begins with the Medo-Persian Empire, and the reason so is because the, the whole beginning of the timeline prophecy began in 457 B.C., 
and the, and the 457 BC during that time frame was when the Medo-Persian Empire was ruling. So that, that kind of gives you a little bit of an overview of what we, where we were at yesterday, and we'll touch on that again today. We'll go into more detail with it today. And we, we looked at yesterday the purpose of the study. The purpose is the end time pre-advent judgment commenced in 1844 A.D. when Jesus Christ entered into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. So, so the purpose of this study is to show that, to, to show that from the Bible. And some people are saying, how in the world can you get that out of the Bible? Stick around, you'll see. You'll find out. We're centering it on, on the very fact, the center of this study, what it's showing, what we're trying to show, is that Jesus is fair. Jesus is fair. Therefore, he judges us before he gives us our reward. And you remember yesterday we went, we went through the, all the times, not all the times, obviously, but quite a few times in the Bible, where, where before Jesus, where, when, before God would ever pass judgment on somebody, what would he first do? He would investigate, right? Yeah, he would give them an opportunity. When Adam and Eve sinned, he'd come down and he questioned them. He didn't just come down and pass judgment because that would have given somebody an, an opportunity possibly to say, I'm not sure he was fair with that. But when he comes down and he investigates, they actually confess out of their own mouth. Yeah, you're right. And you know what the Bible teaches at the end of the judgment, at the end of when Christ comes. What's the Bible say is going to happen? Every knee will bow. Everyone's going to say, hey, he was fair and just. But how can they say that? Unless he's first, and they know, they understand that what he has done has been fair and just. He actually spends time to investigate, and, he, and it's proof. It's just proof positive that God is a God of love, a God of fairness, and a God of justice. So, you know, there, there's a lot of forces out there right now in the world that they try to teach that God is none of those things. They try to teach that, that God is not fair, not just. And, and as we went through these studies, we've seen some of those points brought about. Like, like the devil would have you believe that whenever, whenever a sinner that's it, it, lost, um, whenever they get their reward, that their reward is actually eternity in the flames of hell. And that paints God like as a tyrant. Remember we studied that? It makes him look like a scoundrel, doesn't it? Because we would never do that to our kids, but yet God would do that to his created beings whom he loves. And, and it didn't make sense. And we went through the Bible and we showed when we done the, save, uh, or the, the hell study there, the very fact that God is God of love and he's not going to burn sinners forever. So you have the force in the world teaching that God is a tyrant and then God comes along and wants us to show that as his people... He wants us to present from His Word and in our lives that God is not a tyrant like that. And it goes through each of the studies. You find out God has a day of rest for us. And the, and the devil has tried to take that away. He wants us working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and never spend that time with Him. And, and so as, as we're going through this study, now we're finding out in the 2300 day, the judgment scene, some people want to reject that altogether. There's not a judgment. But you think about it. If there's not a judgment, if God doesn't take time to, to do the judging and, and make sure that He's uh, fair and just in all that He does then that would say, someone could say, you know what? I was lost, but God wasn't fair with me. But if God took time to look at your case, if God took the time to make sure that, that the people that were going to be in heaven were going to be safe to allow there for at least the ages of eternity, and, and, and then the people that were lost deserve to be lost, if He took the time to do that, then you can say that God is fair and God is just. We would all be able to confess that, wouldn't we? You know, in the book of Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 9, it says that, that affliction and sin, it will not rise its ugly head up a second time. And so after Jesus comes, how can he be sure that this stuff is not going to happen again? He has first done a judgment, and he's looked at the hearts, and he's looked at the case of each one of us, and he said, you know what? I can trust Darlene, right? I can trust Shalita here. I can trust Dosung. He's making a point that I know I can trust him for eternity because I've looked at their case. And so heaven's going to be a safe place. You know, I've heard people say, you're not going to lock your doors in heaven. My house ain't going to have a door. You know, Why? Here we go now. We, we left off yesterday in Daniel chapter two, or Daniel chapter eight, rather. Daniel chapter eight. We went through all the way down through verse uh, twenty-seven. Now I'm just going to pick up right now with a little short review here, just so we can kind of fill in the blank here. Remember, we looked at two words for vision in, in, in Daniel, uh, in, in Daniel chapter eight. 
Um, yeah, Daniel chapter 8, we looked at two words for vision. Like the word was translated vision two different ways. Uh, two different words, rather, translated vision in Daniel chapter 8. One is, uh, we looked at in the verses 1, 2, 3, 15 through 17, all those verses, and in Daniel 9, 21, Hazon, speaking of the entire vision. And then, but then when it gets down to the very end of Daniel chapter 8, verses, we're looking at verse 26 and 27, he uses a different word, and the word used there is Mara. And we started showing that there's going to be a link. Now, we're refreshing here because, excuse me, this is going to tie right in to where we're going to when we get to Daniel chapter 9. But look where it says here in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, once again, And the Mara of the evening and the mornings, which was told is true. That word vision there is translated from the word Mara. Therefore, uh, wherefore, shut up the vision, or the Mara, for it shall be for many days. So the vision is still yet for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the Mara, but none understood it. None understood what part of the vision. You know, it's very, again, it's very interesting that when it talks about the Mara, the vision of the 2300 days, it says that's the part that was not understood. And, and you know that that's the part that wasn't understood because all the first parts, he explained it pretty clearly. I mean, we may not have understand all the little details and everything of the little horn as you're going through reading that, but you do understand that Daniel likely understood it was another kingdom that was persecuting God's people. There was an understanding there. There was, it wasn't like, I wonder what in the world this is even talking about. And so, so God actually explains in verse 20 that the ram was the Medo-Persians, and, and then in verse 21 that the, that the rough goat was, the, was Greece, and, and then after that he explains about this other kingdom, this little horn, after, they, after these four divide up, this little horn rises up, and he's persecuting God's people, just like Daniel 7. So it's likely that Daniel understood that. Right? It's likely he understood all that. But then it gets down to the, the last part, once again, in verse 26 and 27, and he uses a different word for vision there than he did on the rest of it. And when he uses that word for vision, he says, I didn't understand this, and neither did anybody else. So that's the last time, as we leave off in Daniel chapter 8, at the end of it, that's the last point you find Daniel not understanding something. Because if you go to Daniel chapter 9, now, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 9, I want to help you to understand uh, what happened in the prayer. Because it's it's very interesting, Daniel begins, Daniel 9, uh, and he says this, verse 1, In the first year Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, did not understand. Is that what it says? Verse 2, what's it say? I, Daniel, understood. So, he says, so he's not asking for understanding here, is he? He says, I understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he, that he would accomplish 70 years in desolation of Jerusalem. Now, as I've read about this, I, I've thought a few things, and, and you can just kind of follow along here a little bit. Daniel sees this, this, this vision in Daniel chapter 8. He sees this vision and, and he understands that, that it says in the 2,300 more, and let's just say it's literal days, that's like six and a half years or something like that, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And he, they, but he's reading Jeremiah the prophet and Jeremiah says that at the end of 70 years they're going to be delivered. Well, Daniel looks and it's like the 70 years is almost up. Well, what's this 2,300 more year thing going to be? What, what's this all about? You mean I've got to wait that much longer before the sanctuary is restored and cleansed here, Right? Because Daniel's looking to the earthly sanctuary. He's like, I've got to wait all this time before, before everything works out? And you can imagine he's stressful, right? So he begins this prayer. Under stress, he begins a prayer. He says, Lord, he turns to the only thing he has for help. And he starts, he starts confessing his sins. He says, I set my face to the Lord to look and seek in prayer and supplications and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That's a good way to pray. Right? Fasting. And you know what the sackcloth and ashes, that's where they put dead people. You know, dead people wrapped up in sackcloth. And the ashes is what you turn back to ashes right when you're dead. Basically, he just thinks of himself as a dead person before God. He's so humble, so, so humiliating himself. You know, it's like, I'm nothing, Lord. But I, I want to answer to prayer here. Fasting, dead people don't eat. 
right? So it's just simply just like admitting that, that he's, a, he's a nobody, he's a nothing, and, and that, that he, 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 he cannot depend on himself for anything that he's going to do. He's going to be depending on, upon God. It's, that's his confession here, right? And then he goes through this little confession thing. And uh, again, I normally don't do this in this study when I give the study. But for the sake of us right here, I want you to understand where Daniel is coming from as, as we go into the explanation. You know, he was struggling with something here. He didn't understand how it could be 2,300 more years or 2,300 days before the sanctuary is cleansed when it should be time to cleanse it now. So there's a struggle going on. And I prayed unto the Lord, my God, and I made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and keep his commandments. Now I'm going to go just out of Bible study a minute and go do a little preaching, okay? It says that God keeps the covenant with who? Those that love him and do what? Keep his commandments. Isn't that interesting? Daniel himself says, hey, you know, God keeps his covenant with those that love him and keep his commandments. So therefore, if, if those don't love, the people don't love him and don't keep his commandments, does, does God keep his covenant with them? No. No, that's the point. So God's covenant is made with who? Those that love him and keep his commandments. He keeps it with them. We have sinned, he says. You know, I've, I've heard it said many times, you know, that you never re- re- see anything recorded where Daniel ever done anything wrong. There's just a few people in the Bible you find that about, and Daniel is one of those. Like, you never, there's, not that he never sinned. We know that all sin and fallen short of the glory of God, except Jesus Christ, right? But you never find anything recorded that Daniel done anything wrong. Well, right here, Daniel is confessing his sins. And, and look what he says. He says, we have sinned. We've committed iniquity. He's putting himself right with them. We've done wickedly. We've rebelled in departing from your precepts and your judgments. Look what it says in verse 6. Neither have we listened unto your servants, the prophets... Your prophets, which spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, I want to ask you something here. What prophet was a contemporary of Daniel while Daniel was in Jerusalem doing his preaching, or, or while Daniel was in Jerusalem, right, right before they, beg- they got taken captive and moved away to uh, Babylon, right before that happened, there was a prophet. You, he's in the Bible, and he was saying that all this stuff was going to happen, but nobody was believing him. Who, who was that? It was Jeremiah, exactly right. And you know, it's something interesting about Jeremiah when you read Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah was just a young kid. He was a young guy. And he's like, Lord, I can't go speak to these people. They're not going to listen to me. And Daniel would have been one of the young people in Babylon in that time that likely wasn't listening to the thing that Jeremiah had to say. And you can't slam Daniel for that because it would have been, it would have been just about like any of us here that, that you have some guy coming along and he's preaching a message that's contrary to what all the leaders in the church and the pastors in the church and things like that are saying, although he is sent from God, Jeremiah was sent from God, right? But they was all rejecting him, and probably all the young people in the town said, you know, Jeremiah can't be right. Let me look at him. He hasn't been through, he hasn't been through seminary, he hasn't done anything. He's just a young guy. And then all the professors of theology over here, they're saying he's wrong, that, that God's going to protect us and we're going to be kept safe. You understand what maybe went on in Daniel's heart and the other people around? But who ended up being right? Jeremiah. And so Daniel then, he, 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 can you imagine? He's, he's like an old man now and he's thinking back. You know, Jeremiah was saying that this would happen, but it seems like in his book he wrote something about the time we would be in bondage. <laughs> so he, he's studying the book of Jeremiah the prophet, he says. And lo and behold, he realizes that Jeremiah was right. All the things that he said was right. And also, God's getting ready to deliver us because we're at the end of 70 years. And so he starts praying, God, forgive me, I never listened to the prophets before. Can you imagine? It, it, it's hard to be, humble yourself and, and admit that, that maybe uh, the, the, the prophets were, were right and I was wrong, isn't it? If you've, if you've rejected them, it's hard to turn back around and say, you know, I was actually the one that was wrong. Man of God there, right? And so Daniel begins through, keeps going through his prayer. Now we're going to get into the, back to the study portion of this. That was just a little extra, and we don't charge extra for that. You know? And uh, we're going to get into the study portion of this now. We're going to Daniel chapter 9, 
and verse 20. Daniel 9 and verse 20. This is like the end of, toward the end of the prayer. Uh, you can read through this prayer. It takes about, I mean, if you read at a normal pace and you don't go really fast, probably just a couple of minutes to read through this prayer. And uh, just keep that in mind as we go through this because I think it's very interesting. While I was yet speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sin of the people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain and of my God, while I was yet speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision. Now, now, just, just what, what word do you suppose is used there when it uses the... Hazan, yeah, right, because he's talking about the, the whole entire vision. I saw him in the, in the entire vision, all the way back at the beginning, the man that I saw when I saw that big vision, Hazan, right? The man I saw in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, the evening offering. That's what the oblation, the, the evening offering. You know, they, they, have, they, they would spend, the Jews, especially those that worship God, and he should be doing it now, um, morning and in the afternoon and in the evening they would be worshiping God special times that they would spend there and so this is the time of the evening and he informed me and talked with me and said oh Daniel I've now come forth to give you skill and understanding let me ask you when's the last time Daniel needed any skill of understanding when was it Back in Daniel chapter, chapter 8, the last two verses, 20, what is it, 26 and 27? 26 and 27, the last two verses. When you get to verse 27, he says, No one understood the Mara, the vision, and no one understood it. And so, so therefore, he, he fainted, he was sick, and, and that was the end of it, right? He, he needed understanding of that. Well, then you get to Daniel chapter 9, just one chapter later, Daniel's still here. Still here. You have no place where he's asking for any understanding in Daniel chapter 9. He never comes to Daniel chapter 9 and says, Lord, please give me understanding of this or give me understanding of that. He has, as a matter of fact, he says, hey, I understood that Jeremiah said we'd be here 70 years. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a need for understanding. It was that he did understand what the Bible was saying. The last time we find him not understanding something is at the end of the vision of Daniel chapter 8. And so Gabriel comes here and he says, it's the same Gabriel, the same man that I saw in the Hazon, the entire vision. Now, when's the last time he had a vision? In Daniel chapter 8. And, and, and the word used is haze on there. So, so basically, the last, the last time I had a vision, that man Gabriel was there, and now the same one's back now, and he's going to give me understanding. And look what he gives him understanding of. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication, did you pick that up? I'm sorry. At, at the beginning of your prayer, Daniel, at the beginning of your supplication, at, at that time, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So Daniel, as soon as he started praying, God says, okay, Gabriel, go give him understanding. So, so God, Gabriel's standing there before Jesus Christ. He's standing there in, in heaven, right? And, and God says, okay, go give Daniel understanding. And Daniel travels from, from, from where God's presence is to where da- Daniel is in, in a matter of just a few minutes, however long that prayer was. Interrupts him in the middle of his prayer. That's moving fast, isn't it? That's like the speed of thought. And so I, I don't know how God does that. I can't wait to find out. You know, I can't wait to maybe be able to do that myself, be able to travel that fast. Maybe, maybe the angels have some kind of advantage when we get to heaven and, and maybe we've got to hang on to their coattail or something in order to go that fast. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I just think that's beautiful and interesting, the fact that he went from where God was to where Daniel was in like two minutes. And he may have been there before that listening to the rest of his prayer. We don't know. You know, maybe traveling at the speed of thought. Beautiful, isn't it? So he goes on. He says, Daniel, you're greatly beloved. Therefore... Understand the matter and consider the vision. What word do you suppose is being used there for vision? 
the Mara. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because it was the Mara that Daniel didn't understand. It was the M-A-R-E-H, that, that, that word there, that Daniel did not understand. That was, the, that was the part he was having trouble with. And so he says, therefore, I want you now to understand the Mara, the vision, the part of the 2300 days. Do you see, do you see the tie there where it ties the two together? Because the reason I'm bringing, bringing that point out, because many people reject that. Say, oh, no, 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 that's not talking about the 2300 days. He's not leading back to that. Brothers and sisters, it's obvious he's leading back to that. He's using the word. The word used there is a completely different word than what he was using all the rest of the time when he was using the word term Hazon. It, it was like he purposely, God purposely had Daniel tie those together so that you and I, standing here in, in, in the time we're standing in at this time, and there will, be, there will be all kinds of deceptions out there in the world, you know, that, and, and things and people trying to say, hey, this, this doesn't fit, and this isn't right, destroying the faith of people who are trusting in the Lord and, and realizing that, hey, what God has said is true. And so he ties it directly here with the wording. He ties it to the 2300 days. He says, I want you to consider the vision, understand, understand the matter, and consider the vision or the mara. Give you understanding of that. Then look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So all these things are going to happen within this 70-week time frame. But now, we got, I want you to notice something here, uh, again, in verse 24, because there's a word here that uh, is, it's not real well in the King James, as far as translated goes, and that's the word determined, where it says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now, now the, uh, the, the word that you find there in the Hebrew is one, the title, that word is chatak. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but I just put it up there, and somebody can write me a letter about it, straighten me up. Chatak, who said that? Somebody said that? All right. Scott back there straightened me out on it. And, and so you don't have to write me a letter. If I said it right, write Scott a letter. If, if, if Scott said it right, you can write me one. Okay. Chadok. Whatever it is there. But it means, now here's what's interesting. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have that word. So we can't go to another place in the Bible and say, well, let's compare it and see what this word means. Right? You, you can't do it that way. But there is something, in, uh, something about, about that word that you do find in other places in Jewish, in Jewish writings. Uh, you, the Mishnah, which is like the, um, it was written in the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. It was, it was, a, a, it was a Bible commentary, written, written on the Bible, the Jewish Bible commentary. It uses that same word, Chadok, several times. Right? It uses it several times in there. And when it uses it, in ten, it's like 18 times. In 10 of the 18 times, it's referring to cutting off the, 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 uh, a part of an animal in an animal sacrifice. You know, it talks about cutting off the leg or, or cutting, off, you know, cutting off some part of an animal sacrifice. So when the word is used in context in other places, it's actually talking about cutting something off. And, and, and when you look at the, if you look maybe in some of the concordances, like the, the um, um, oh, Strong's or one, one of those like that, it does also define that as, as one, one way of saying that word. It means to be cut off. Are you following? So when it says, 70 weeks are cut off upon thy people... Uh, maybe one of your Bibles has that written in a translation. Does anybody have a Bible where instead of saying determined, it says something like cut off in that same version here? Because everybody has the King James Version just about in here, right? Decreed. He, what? Decreed. decreed. Okay, 70 weeks are decreed upon thy people. So there, there, there are different translations there and however it is. But the word, the word that fits best there, the word that makes most sense is 70 weeks are cut off upon thy people and upon the holy city. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a 70 week span or 70... If it's 70 weeks and you take a day for a year in Bible prophecy, how long is that? Yeah, 70 times 7 is 49, or 490 rather. And so you've got 490 years that's decreed or cut off or determined upon your people. Right? 
70 weeks are determined upon their people. And that's the starting point for the 70-week prophecy. That's what you find for a starting point here. So let's, let's look at this. 70 weeks cut off from what? And they were cut off from the Mara of the 2300 days. Are you following that? Now listen. The 2300-day prophecy, the Mara, when you look at that, you have 2,300 days that the Bible's talking about. And then here it says, uh, that, that, what kind of prophecy is that, by the way? It's a time, what we call a time prophecy, right? So the last thing Daniel did not understand was a time prophecy. And it used the term Mara about it, right? And then you come over here in Daniel chapter 9, and it says, 70 weeks are determined upon your people. And speaking just after verse 23, consider the vision or the Mara. He says, I want you to consider the vision. 70 weeks are determined upon your people. What, what's a 70-week prophecy? What would you call that? A time prophecy. So the last time he didn't have understanding, speaking of a, of a vision, was a 2300-day prophecy, a time prophecy. And then, he, and then he comes to give him an explanation, and he gives him an explanation using a time prophecy. And he says, this time prophecy is cut off. Cut off from what? It has to be cut off from the 2300 days. What else would it be cut off from? You can't cut 2300 days off from the little horn. Or 70 weeks, rather. You can't cut 70 weeks off from the little horn. You can't cut 70 weeks off from the Medo-Persian Empire, can you? It makes no sense, does it? But can you cut 70 weeks off from 2,300 days? Yeah, absolutely you can. It can be cut off from that. And so he says it's cut off for your people and for the holy city. So we find that 70 weeks equals 490 years. You have 2,300 year total, and you're cutting off 490. So apparently after the end of the 490, how much time do you have left? 1,810 days or years. So you can do it two different ways. Or you can take 1,810 years from 34 A.D. When you do that, you, you, that's the end of the 70 weeks. Or you can take 2,300 years from 457 B.C. and you come to the year 1844. Now, you've already studied with Scott that the 70 weeks begins when? 457 B.C. You studied that when, when Scott done, done the, the whole thing there on um, Daniel 9, right? He already studied Daniel 9 with you. And, and, and so that, and it, it showed when you done Daniel 9 and you found the 457 B.C., what happened at the end of the seventy at this end of the seventy weeks? Or actually, at the end of the sixty nine weeks in that time frame. What, what, what was it that happened? Christ. Christ was Christ was here right on time, though, wasn't he? He came on time. He was crucified on time, and then and then the gospel went to the Gentiles in thirty four A.D. You remember all that happening? Now here, just as sure as the four fifty seven B.C. pointed to Christ, right? That time frame has to be the beginning time frame because it comes and it points to Christ. Just as sure as that is, you have to also apply it to the coming. Or, or the judgment scene at the end of that time frame or the cleansing of the sanctuary at the end of 2300 days. In other, in other words, if the, time, if the beginning time prophecy doesn't fit to where you have the 2300 day time prophecy, then it also doesn't fit for the Messiah. Are you understanding? Let, let us go on. It, maybe it'll, it'll clear up a little bit. In, 34, in 457 B.C., the decree went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, just like the Bible said what happened at the beginning of the 70 weeks. You remember that? And then after 483 years, or the 69 weeks, what happened? Jesus was baptized. This is just review. We, we looked up, Scott already looked over this with you, didn't he? You've already been over this, right? right. Everybody? Okay. And, and then in 31 AD, Jesus was crucified. In the midst of the week, the Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. You know, who was he cut off for? Us. For us, right? And, and then 34 AD, you find the stoning of Stephen, and the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and that's the end of the 490 years. So you got the 70-week prophecy ends there. But if it's cut off from the rest of 2,300 days, then, then that means you take 2,300, right? You minus the, the, the other part of the time there. You, you minus the, uh, the 480 time, years, or 490 years there. leaves you with 1,810 years. It's cut off from the, from the 2,300 days. If you take 490 from 2,300, you come up with 1,810. Now, 
What happened at the end of 1000, uh, at, the, at the year uh, 1844 actually, the 1810 years later, what happened? Some very interesting things happened. We're going to look at that more when we do the Spirit of Prophecy study, but, but, I want, but notice that there, that something happened in 1844, and the Bible tells us what that would be. What was it? The cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, here's a question. The cleansing of what sanctuary? How do we know it was the heavenly sanctuary? Because there was no sanctuary on earth in that time, right? In, in, in the year 1844, there was no sanctuary on earth. But now, even in the day of Daniel, you think about what Daniel was doing. When Daniel sees that the 2,300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed, in his mind, he's thinking of what sanctuary? The one on earth. But which one was it referring to? The one in heaven. Can you understand why he was distressed? Even himself had made a mistake right there that, that he was thinking of an earthly sanctuary, not the one in heaven being cleansed. And, and so... What actually takes place? What is this all this about with the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and all this kind of stuff? And you remember, as you studied with Scott on judgment, uh, the judgment part one, when, we, when he does the judgment part, when he done that, the judgment part one, you, you remember that he showed how the sanctuary worked, right? And on the, you had the outside there in, in, the, in the courtyard, and they would make the sacrifice. They would take the blood, and they would go where into it with it? The holy place, right? And they would sprinkle the blood there. And all through the year, the sins of the people would be piling up there in the holy place, Right? And then one time a year on the, on the, on the Day of Atonement, the, the, pre, the high priest at this time would go into the most holy place and then the, the sanctuary would be cleansed. And I just won't get into the details of that. The sanctuary would get, be cleansed and everybody would be right and everything would be okay at that point, right? And so what's been going on in heaven since Christ ascended to heaven? Let us go on and find out. Mark chapter 16 and verse 19. Who would like to read Mark 16 verse 19? Do we have any volunteers? As we're turning there, give everybody time to get there. Mark 16. You know, these, these studies here are a little more laborious than the others, you know, as far as just, just kind of plowing through it. But once you get an understanding of this, it, it helps solidify the fact that you know what your high priest is doing for you. You have confidence in him. That, it, it's, it's not so much the detail here. It's not so much worrying about the dates, you know, although they're important, as it is as to what's going on. And, and, and to understand also that we've entered into the last days. And, and how, that, how that all fits. Remember, Daniel's prophecy said this is going to apply to the last days. You're listening to Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study, coming to you from Life, the Lay Institute for Evangelism. Our Bible study will continue in a minute, but first, I want to remind you that you can download the study guide to today's Bible class at radiobiblestudy.life. That's radiobiblestudy.life. Today, we're listening to the Judgment Part 2 study, which is study number 15. So look for study number 15, the Judgment Part 2, at radiobiblestudy.life. And if you missed part of today's broadcast, you can re-listen to it there as well, radiobiblestudy.life. Now, back to Pastor Philip Sizemore. Tom, do you, do you want to read that one for us? Uh, we're going to Mark chapter 16 and verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So, so Jesus here, so what we find here, Jesus went up and he said, where did he go sit when he ascended to heaven? The right hand of God. Now, remember when you studied the sanctuary, where was, God, where, was God's, uh, where was God's throne symbolized in the sanctuary? Do you remember? In the holy place. You had the table of showbread, and you had the two, two stacks right there, right? And, and you, you had one repre representing God's throne there. And then you, when you studied the sanctuary, you, you, you saw that, that you have God's throne represented in the holy place, out in the holy place. But you know that God's throne is, is portable, it's movable? 
that actually when he does different scenes in the, in the judgment scene, that, that, that he would go to different places. So it was a symbol of, out there in the, in the holy place uh, of Christ going, sitting down by his father, the two loaves of bread there sitting in the holy place out there on the, um, on the table of showbread. Are you following me there? All right, now let, let us go on and look, look as, as we continue down to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now, as you go through the book of Revelation, you'll notice some things. As you go through Revelation, it progresses through the sanctuary. All the book of Revelation does is it progresses as, as Christ going through the sanctuary. Now, according to what we just read, where did Christ go when He ascended? To sit at the right hand of the Father. Where is He in Revelation chapter 1? Is He in the most holy place or in the holy place? Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Shalita, will you want to read that for us? Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. We're going to find out, is Christ, did, when He ascended, did He go to the most holy place? or the holy place, according to the book of Revelation. Go ahead and read that for us. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the, the paps with a golden girdle. Okay, where is it showing Jesus being? Where is the candlestick and all that stuff at? It's in the holy place, right? So Revelation opens up with Jesus still in the holy place, and, and, he, and he's doing his work there in the holy place. Now, what would the high priest do each, week, each uh, day in the holy place? What would he be doing? He, yeah, it, it, the blood would be brought in, and he, the, the people's sins would be being transferred to the sanctuary. From the people to the sacrifice animal, the blood going into the holy place, right? Daily. Be, this would be going on every day. That's what the high priest would be doing. And we see Jesus here in Revelation chapter 1 doing just that. He's in the holy place. He's doing the, pre, the, the job of the priest. But then, now we're going to see, and as we go to the book of Daniel, we're going to go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, what we looked at a little earlier, chapter 7, verse 9 through 14, and we're going to see the progress from the holy place to the most holy place. We're going to see the progress from the holy place unto the most holy place. And that, that's found in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9 through 14. Let me get there myself. Ezekiel, Daniel, please be patient with me. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 through 14. And um, we'll probably get Darlene to read that. Would that be all right, Darlene? All right. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 through 14. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast... Beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I watched, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one 
which shall not be destroyed. Okay, can you see there in the text when it starts off with Daniel chapter 9, and it says that I beheld the thrones were set in place, they were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. It's the beginning of, and, and then it goes on talking about this beginning of a judgment scene taking place. You understand that, right? Now, where, where would this be whenever the judgment would take place? It, it would be in heaven, but specifically, now we're going into the most holy place. The, 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 uh, the whole thing has moved because on the Day of Atonement, as you learned, the, the Bible teaches you know, that thy way, O Lord, is found in this sanctuary, right? right? In the book of Psalms, right? And you learned that the Day of Atonement or the Day of Judgment, the word atonement is the same thing, you know, like the Day of Judgment would take place, where at? In the most holy place. So you find God here in the sanctuary in heaven. And, and you notice here that it says, it says uh, let me get down here to it. Oh yeah, verse 9. It, and where, where it talks about toward the latter part of that, it says his hair was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and wheels as burning fire. God's throne has what? Wheels. wheels. So if you have wheels, what's that make you? Yeah. Portable, movable, right? You move. So it moves now. It, the whole thing, the whole pro- proceeding here moves now from the holy place to where? The most holy place because what begins? The judgment. And, and according to what we looked at already in Daniel 7, when does this judgment begin? And just looking at Daniel 7, sometime after? 1798. And so he's looking here and he sees this whole thing, this whole process of things taking place. Now, I want you to understand something. Because it's pretty common knowledge that in the year 1844, that many people thought that Jesus was going to come back and the whole cleansing of the sanctuary was, was God cleansing the earth with fire. You know, that's a common teaching out there. William Miller, he, he would read this and, and others, him being a Baptist minister and, he, and these others, was reading this, they would read these stories in the Bible or actually these, these prophecies in the Bible. And he takes a look at this and he says, huh, so... You've had the little mouth, the little horn speaking great things, and then the throne, the judgment, uh, and Jesus comes. That's, that's the whole thing about, about what's going on there, because you, I let, that's why I let you read down to verse 13 and 14. He says, hey, Jesus is coming. When this comes, Jesus, Jesus is going to come whenever all this takes place. But what he did not understand, what he didn't understand was the sanctuary that it's talking about wasn't the earth. You don't find anything in the Bible referring to the earth as a sanctuary, right? You find it where God's people is referred to as a sanctuary. What know you not that you are the temple of God? The Bible teaches that. So he thought that this was, this was the whole process of, of Jesus coming and cleansing the earth with fire. And many others did too. And they preached, hey, Jesus is going to come in 1844. They had the time frame right, as we've already seen. 1844 fits perfectly with everything else, doesn't it? But they had the event wrong. Jesus begins the judgment scene in 1844. Now here's a question. How long should it take God to cleanse the sanctuary? I mean, how quickly could he do it? He calls worlds into existence, right? So, so he begins the judgment scene with the dead, and then he moves on into the living. This whole judgment scene takes place. But couldn't God just do the judgment like that and be done? Mm-hmm. So what's taking him so long? Because, uh... He should be able to finish it, shouldn't he, Robert? Uh-huh. He should be able to say, okay, um, guilty, innocent, guilty, innocent, 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 innocent. They're all innocent in here, right? And they're all going to be in heaven, right? Nobody's guilty. They're all going to be in heaven. Shouldn't he be able to do that that quick? But now remember, as we go through our lives, is everybody here sinless? So what are you doing when you, each, each, each day, each, each, each moment, you know, you're confessing, right? What happens to that sin when you confess it? Where does it go? Does it just go away into nothing? You know, when sin takes place, it's like something, something tangible happens. You know, there's, there's something there. It has to be gotten rid of. That's why you have to have the shedding of blood to get rid of something that's, that's intangible. You know, sin is not really something. You can't see it. Like, look, I got this jar of sin here. See it? Now we have, to have a, we have to have a blood sacrifice to get rid of it. It doesn't work like that, does it? But it is like something tangible takes place. So when you confess your sins, it has to go somewhere. So where are they going? 
to the holy place, right? They're going to the holy place right now, where Jesus, as our high priest, is doing it, doing his work now. But now, but then after 1844, where does he move to? In the most holy place. And so the sins are still piling up during his time while he's in there. You know, in, in the, during the Day of Atonement, what would the people have to be doing on the Day of Atonement? Afflicting. They're afflicting themselves. You know, they'd be humbling themselves, praying, and afflicting themselves. And by the way, if they weren't doing that in the, in, in the Old Testament Day of Atonement, when the high priest would, would drop that censer and he would come out from the most holy place, and no one knew when he was going to do that. No one knew when the high priest was going to come out of the most holy place on the Day, on the day of Atonement. He would be in there sometimes, like last year, he was in there for like three hours, a year before that. I don't know how it worked exactly, you know, as far as how long he'd be in there. But he, never was always, he, he wasn't always in there for the same amount of time. And the people never knew when he was going to come out of the most holy place. So they would be outside afflicting their souls, praying, asking God for forgiveness, making sure they're right with him. Because if they didn't, and the high priest come out of the most holy place, you know what would happen? They were cut off. They were lost. They couldn't be saved. They, you know, they, they were cut off from the people. And so when you apply that to the actual real thing taking place, with Jesus now in the most holy place in heaven, and what should we be doing? Afflicting our souls. The Day of Atonement is taking place. The Day of Atonement, the, the, the typical part of it, right? The actual fulfillment of this. Jesus is now in the most holy place. And as we confess our sins, they're still piling up there. He's still forgiving them. But if we're not afflicting ourselves, we're not confessing our sins, they're not going there. And you know what's going to happen very soon? He's going to come out. He's going to come out of the most holy place. So it would take Jesus no time to actually cleanse the sanctuary, right? He could do it real quick. What's taking him so long? You and me. You know, you're a sanctuary. No, you're not. Your body's the temple of God. All, all of us collectively, God is waiting for to cleanse us. He's pouring His Spirit out upon His people. He's doing the cleansing process. If we'll let Him. If we'll let Him. He's getting a people ready for translation. He's getting the people ready to go to heaven. He's waiting on us. He can cleanse the sanctuary there in no time. I like it in John chapter 14 when it says, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Many people say, oh yeah, he's up there right now like with his, with his contractors out there working and they're, and they're building buildings and building mansions so we can all have some place to live. People actually believe that. We're talking about the God who spoke the worlds into existence. How long would it take Jesus to prepare a place for us? You know what place he's trying to prepare? He's trying to prepare our hearts. He's preparing us to be able to go there. You and I right now, if an angel were to pop in here right now in all of his glory, you know what would happen to us? We would all fall down on our face and we would just be like passed out like dead men, like what happened to the Roman soldiers at Christ's tomb. Do you know what would happen if God were to appear right here right now? Every one of us would be immediately evaporated, be gone. He's preparing a people to stand in his presence. That's the cleansing. What's, the cleansing is taking place right now. He's cleansing us. How's he doing it? Malachi chapter 3. And I would like to get uh, Tim to read that one, if you wouldn't. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, the book before Matthew. Hey, hey, you notice most people in their Bibles, you have a blank page here before Matthew. Just as a little note, that's a good place to make notes. You can get a lot of notes here, right here in, in that, on that blank page. But Malachi chapter 3. Tim, I want you to read verses 1 through 6 when you get there. Malachi 3, 1 through 6. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. 
And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift uh, witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless uh, that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed." I'm the Lord, and I change not. Therefore, you're not consumed. Is the end of that? Think about that. What that's saying? He's a God of love and mercy. That's why you're not consumed. I don't change. I'm still merciful. And and, and how do we know? And and why is he? Why do we know he's saying that? Because just above that, he says all the people doing sorcery and all these kind of things. Right? If if he had just like done quick justice, we would all immediately be wiped out. But notice what it says. What's he doing right now? He's he's purifying his people. Let me, let me just pick up on it again. It says, Behold, I send my messenger that shall prepare the way before the Lord. Verse 2, um, But who may abide in the day of his coming? Or who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He, he's, doing a, he's doing a refining. In other words, the only people that can stand in his coming are those people that, he, that allowed him to refine them and make them pure and white with, with that fuller soap. You know? He's working on us right now. He's working on our hearts. He's purifying us. I, I remember I got this friend, Sergio, and, and he makes teeth for a living. And uh, uh, w- one of the things he makes people, some people want gold teeth and other things like that. And they have these crucibles they're in, their, in, their, in their place where they do the teeth. And they, they heat up the metal. And, you know, and they got to keep getting the dross and stuff off because they want it just the, the best metal they can get when they make these different uh, silver teeth or gold, copper teeth. And he brought some pictures in of these crucibles and things like that and showed us what they were like and how it worked. Like one time at church when we, when we were studying this very thing. In, in other words, what Jesus is doing. What a crucible is, is where they put the precious metal in there, and but they heat it up and it melts and it gets hot under that, in, under that heat, under that fire, right? That would be us getting hot in, under the persecution and things like that, the trials of this world. And he looks at it, and it's all drossy on top, and he can't see anything but dross and stuff because all that nastiness rises to the top, and the impurities do rise to the top in the, under the heat. So you know, what, you know what the refiner does? He scrapes off the top of that. And then it keeps heating up, and it gets more of the dross and stuff on top like that. The impurities just keep coming to the top and he keeps scraping off the top until you know what eventually does happen. He'll look into it and the person refining it will see his reflection in it. And when he sees his reflection, you know what he has to do immediately at that time? Take it off the heat. Because if he leaves it in the heat, you know what will happen? It will ruin the metal. What's God doing right now? What, what symbolism is given here that God is doing with, with the crucible and, and, and with, the, with the refiner's fire? What's he doing? He's waiting until he sees his reflection in us. And when, it, when that time comes, now think about it. During the judgment, while he's cleansing us, when that time comes, when he sees his reflection in, in you, Vanessa, when he sees his reflection in me and, and, and his people, when he sees his reflection, he can't wait any longer. He can't let it go any longer. Then he comes. The good news of this whole judgment scene that we've looked at here, the good news about it, is God is doing the judging right now. He's looking at His people. He's finding His people. You know, the, the Bible says that, God, that, that God's eyes run to and fro in the earth, looking for those people that, that, whose heart is right with them, and to show Himself mighty in their behalf. I think it's in Second Chronicles 16. I'm not 100% sure. Hold on, I can tell you. That's an interesting statement to have, isn't it? Uh, let's see. It's in um, 
It's uh, Second Chronicles 16.9. Second Chronicles 16.9 when you find that. Where his eyes are running to and fro on the earth. God even now is wanting to prepare a people through this judgment process who will be ready when he comes. And when his people are ready, when that temple is cleansed, when everything is done, Jesus is going to come. And he's going to take us home to be with him. I'm looking forward to that time when this judgment scene ends. Now, we have just a few more minutes. And what I want to do here in just a few more minutes, just because the, the time part of this thing is, is a little sketchy in some people's minds, you know, uh, I remember when I first learned this and went through this study the first time as I was looking at this, I was really pretty troubled because it's like, man, I'm not getting this. This is so hard to understand. And, and, and I, after going through it about four or five, six times, then it made sense, but I still couldn't explain it to somebody else. You know, and, and even now, after I feel like I can't explain it to somebody else, so I'll have people come up to me and say, that made no sense at all. I'm like, well, it didn't to me either the first time, you know. But after I went over it and over it and over it, and the guy that, that, that I was hearing it from, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the first time I heard this was from Doug Batchelor. And so do you think he can make it clear? You know, I love that guy. He makes it awful clear, makes things very clear. But I still didn't get it. It just, it just seemed like he was just talking in, in tongues. <laughs> you know, he was speaking another language. But after I heard it several times, then, then I started tying things together and understanding it. And I said, oh, I get it. And I understood why it was important. Because just as sure as the judgment begins in 1844 to allow to us know we're in the last days, as sure as that time is, is as sure as Jesus coming on time. And so when you start tying these things together, you know that just as sure as Christ came, the judgment happened too. So what I want to do, I just want to back up just a little bit and do a little bit of review with you while we have a few minutes. So let's go back to Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, rather, Daniel chapter 8. And when we was looking at Daniel chapter 8, we found out, once again, that the word, two words for vision were Mara and Hazon, right? And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, it says, The Mara, the vision of the evening mornings, was told it's true. Therefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So he tells him to shut the vision up. It is true. Shut it up for it will be for when? Many days, still yet. So it's going to be applying to still yet into the future. And then Daniel fainted and was sick certain days. And after that he rose up and did the king's business. And it says he was astonished at the vision, but nobody understood it. Now I had trouble with this sometimes. Um, Daniel didn't understand it. But Daniel writes himself. Even in his very own self, he writes something that, that may give you some encouragement right now. Did Daniel understand the vision at this time? No. But did God eventually give him understanding? Okay, look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We're going we're to tie these two statements together to give us encouragement because some people might not understand and they may become discouraged. But notice that Daniel didn't understand at the beginning either, but he understood later. All right? Look at Daniel chapter 12. It says, And many of them that sleep in the dust, verse 2, I mean verse 2, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise, verse 3, they that be what? Wise shall shine as the, right, as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteousness, and shall be as stars forever and ever. So the wise, what's, going, what's the wise going to do? They're going to turn many people to righteousness. So the wise people are people that are preaching God's message, aren't they? Look now in verse 9. Daniel 12, verse 9. He said, Go away, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to win. The time of the end. So are people going to understand it before the time of the end comes along? No, because, no, no not, not before the time of the end comes along. I'm sorry. I'll pick you out on that. No one heard you on the, on the, on the recording anyway there, Anita. <laughs> but no one, what he says is it'll be for the time of the end. In other words, it won't be understood until you reach the time of the end. And so many people wondered what all this stuff meant until like in, in time of the end began around 1844 time frame, right? But look what it says in verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, 
Many shall be purified made tri- and, uh, and made white and tried. What do we learn at the end of Daniel, uh, at the end of our study? The crucible, right? The, the purification process. There, many people are going to go through this purification process. You, you, are you following this? But the wicked shall do wickedly. So during the pro- purification process, what's going to happen? The wicked, what, what are the wicked going to be doing? They're going to be doing wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand. None of the wicked will understand. Now you're thinking, oh, well, I'm not getting this. Does that mean you're wicked? Carry on. But the wise shall understand. The wise shall understand. Now, did Daniel understand when he first heard it? No. But did he eventually, after, after some time, did he get, get what was going on, taking place? Yeah, because Gabriel came back and explained it to him. The Spirit of God was working with him and explained it to him what was going on. So, and, and I love how it is here because how do you know who the wise is? Do you know who the wise is based on their understanding? No. Back in verse 3, it tells us how you know who the wise is. Who are the wise? Those that turn people to righteousness. So if you're going to have an understanding of what, God, what the Spirit of God is teaching through like any of these prophecies and things like that, and you're struggling with it, one of the things you may, you may need to be doing is sharing what you know. You're turning people to righteousness. You're teaching people about Jesus. You're teaching them that He wants them to be ready for His coming. And, and, and even though you might not understand all the details, as you share your faith, you know what God's going to do for you? What's He going to do for you? He's going to give you understanding. You're going to be wise. Because it's the wise that turn people to righteousness. So it says, Many will be purified, made white. The wicked will do wickedly, but the wise will understand. So Daniel then, he did not understand the vision, the Mara. And then we go to Daniel chapter 9, and we, there, was a, there was a link uh, between the 2300-day prophecy. There was a link between the 2300 days in Daniel chapter 8, and a link between the 70-week uh, the, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Do you remember what that link was, how we linked them together? The word, what was the word? Mara, Mara or vision, right? The, the, two, the two words used for vision there, that's the only time you find it used in, in those two chapters is the, linking the 2300 days with the 70 weeks. And it says the 70 weeks are cut off. Remember we looked at that, cut off. Cut off from what? Now, the, the, from the 2300 day time frame, it has to be cut off from that. Are you following? Everybody okay? Now, some people say, well, now, why couldn't the 2300 days be cut off from the end of it? Why does that be cut off from the beginning? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you know that the, 20, that, the, that the 2300 days, the 70 weeks, is cut off from the beginning and not the end? How do you know that? Because of Christ. Right? If you cut it off from the end of the 2300 days, and so you, you pick something out at the, at the end, 457 B.C., and you, and you go to the end, and then, then you back up from 457 B.C. and go the other way, right? Does that take you to the time of the end? No. If you go, if you go 457 B.C. backwards, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't, that takes you nowhere near the time of the end. And then the whole Christ prophecy wouldn't fit either. So God gives us a dual, dual prophecy here. He gives us the 70 weeks and 2,300 days so it can both show you that Christ came on time and that the 2,300 days prophecy ended on time in 1844. And then remember, this prophecy, according to Daniel, and this is in Daniel chapter uh, uh, 8, verse 19, this prophecy, prophecy is for the appointed time of the end. This, this is gonna, so the time of the end, according to the Bible, would end at, at some time toward the latter part of this earth's history, the time we're living in now, around the year 1844. So it's taking us down to the end of time. Now, if the end of time or the time of the end began around that time, the 1844 time frame, what's that, do, what's that saying about our, our time right now? Do you understand the importance of this prophecy? Time is going to, about to be no more. It's about to run out. Aren't you looking forward to the time you don't have, stop, you don't have a clock? Like right now, they're, they're holding their hands up and things like that on the cameras and saying, you just got like a minute or two minutes, you know, wrap this up or whatever. One day, we can be in heaven and we can all talk for like 10 years and nobody will get tired of it. <laughs> you don't, no, no stopwatches or anything like that because you don't get tired, right? 
You, you may say, okay, look, I'll come back and listen to you another, uh, next year, but I'm going to go take a, a year off here, a sabbatical. Anyway, time one day will run out. Now, let us finish here. We're going to just finish up here. I'll just add another text in, just, just as a little extra. Now, when I give this study in somebody's home, this is another one I usually spend extra time with. Like, after I get done with it, a lot of time, I will go back and study just the part I just started with you again over. I'll get my little um, chart back out now, and I just go over it one more time with them. Now, Pastor Scott goes, goes crazy with me if I do things like that because I end up being in the home like an hour and a half, and he says, they won't invite you back. Like, I'm persistent. You know, it, yeah, they'll invite me back. <laughs> but it, may, it, puts you in their, it puts you in their home a lot longer. But I try my best to make sure, because normally, unless somebody's really an intelligent person, really up there, they don't get it the first time or even the second time through. But it is an important study. And, and so when this is all eventually finally said and done, whether people believe it or not, Jesus one day is going to make the pronouncement at the end of this judgment scene in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. We looked at this at the beginning. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now, what, does that, what kind of language does that sound like? It sounds like a finalization of a judgment scene, doesn't it? It's over. That's it. You're going to remain holy or you're going to remain filthy. And then what's the next thing that takes place? And behold, I come quickly. The judgment ends, I become quickly. You know what that ties in perfectly with? Daniel 7. We looked at that three times there as well. The Bible is replete with this, with this whole theme. Judgment, then the second coming. Next time on Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study, we'll look at the subject of baptism. Here are a few highlights. Now that's very simple. What does the Bible say? How many baptisms? One. one. The Bible says there's one baptism. Now let's see what type of baptism the Bible is talking about. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some examples of baptisms in the Bible. And the first one that we're going to look at is Jesus' baptism. Now, Jesus is our example, so looking at his baptism is important for us because uh, he came to be an example for us. You've been sharpening the edges of your sword, the Word of God, the Bible, with Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study. Don't forget you can download the study guide to today's episode at our website, radiobiblestudy.life. That's radiobiblestudy.life. Look for study number 15 on the Judgment, Part 2 at radiobiblestudy.life. Thanks for joining us today. Life on the Edge, the radio Bible study, comes to you from WRGE Radio. A service of Life Legacy Ocala, Incorporated.